Welcome to the Waukesha Bible Church Podcast. We believe the Bible tells a single story, and at the center of that story is Jesus. If you like what you hear today, additional sermons, teaching sessions, and written material can be found on our website at waukeshawbible.org. We hope you enjoy today's episode. Good morning. This morning we continue our series of our core values. The scripture passage we're studying today is 2 Timothy uh, chapter 3, verses 10 through 17. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Good morning. I am going to be preaching from 2 Timothy chapter 3. So if you have a Bible, I'd ask that you open it up there. It's good for us to see, to see it for ourselves out of the scriptures. This month, we are doing... Our foundational, for here at Watch Bibles Church, our four foundational pillars, we're preaching through them this month, just as a, a new year reminding us who we are and what we're about and, and channeling us and getting us back onto focus. Last week, we, we preached on Christ-exalting. We are a Christ-exalting church. We are a word-centered church. We are a grace-based church. And we are a global-impacting church. These are ideals that we aspire to. This morning, my goal in my message this morning is to remind us that we are a word-centered church, and, and not only that, but maybe more so importantly, to, to teach us and show us why we are a word-centered church. And that's my, my goal and my purpose this morning in my message. And if you want a title for my message, my title is, The Word of God is Able, and, and there's a lot of meaning in that word, Able. Hopefully we can see it in the text here as we go here. But look at it Look at it in verse 14. As for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believe, knowing from whom you have learned it, how from a child you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able, able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Now then, if we want a context for the book here and for... Uh, the verses that we're going to be focusing in on, mostly 14 through 17, but there's a lot of context that, that feed into these verses. Paul is writing this letter to Timothy from prison. He's in jail in Rome, and he's in jail not knowing necessarily his future, and Timothy not knowing Paul's future. And Timothy is pastoring. He could be at Ephesus. I don't know for sure where he's pastoring, but he's pastoring in another city. And Paul writes this letter, and we know from the letter that this is Paul's final swung song. This is his final exhortation, his final teaching and instruction to Timothy. And I want us to see that here so that we can try to 
put ourselves in the shoes of Timothy as he's hearing and reading this letter. But um, as we know, Paul and Timothy are like Batman and Robin, right? Paul was going and preaching, and Timothy was Batman's sidekick, and, and they did everything together. And Paul sent Timothy and missions all over the place. In the chapter here, Paul is like a father figure for Timothy. So then if we, if we can bring ourselves into the shoes of Timothy as he's reading this letter, if you look at chapter 4, just to get a context of, of what's going on here, chapter 4, verse 6, Timothy gets this letter from Paul, and as he's reading it, he, he, he reads verse 6, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. I think when Timothy, they probably, Timothy probably had a hope that Paul would pre- continue on in prison for, for many, maybe many years, or he had hoped that Paul would get out of prison and would be able to be, would be released from Rome, and he would see Paul again and, and be able to continue on ministering with Paul. And then when, when Timothy, I think, read verse 6, I'm guessing his heart broke, and I'm guessing he wept a lot. He says, I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. It's like uh, having your father laying sick on a bed, and you, and you, you, you pray, you hope he'll, he'll get better and he'll recover, and your father goes, no, I'm, I'm dying. I've ran the race. I've fought the fight. I'm done. Paul himself didn't even have the will to go on at this point. Paul himself, he himself was done. And we know that from tradition and history, probably not long after this letter, Paul had his head chopped off and he was executed and and he fulfilled verse 6, I'm being poured out, and he was poured out. So then we have in in these verses here, Paul is giving Timothy his final exhortation, his final turning. So Timothy, who who trusted Paul, who was taught by Paul, who followed Paul's example, Paul is turning Timothy now. And in in verse 10, as we, of chapter 3, verse 10, Paul is commending Timothy to my example. You have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions, sufferings happened to me in Antioch. So Paul is turning him to my example. Remember, Timothy, what what we've been through together. Remember what I've gone through. Remember how I walked and how I talked and how how Christ was glorified in, in me and through me in all these persecutions. But more so... In these verses, as Paul's departing, and as Timothy is probably crushed emotionally, Paul's turning Timothy to the Word of God. He's turning Timothy to the Bible. Verse 14, he says, But Timothy, you, I'm leaving, I'm departing, I'm being poured out, but you continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it, how from a child you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise unto salvation through faith in Christ Jesus, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof. And he's reinforcing, he's saying, go, Timothy, I, I know I'm leaving, but go cling, cling to the word of God. Pour out your heart before God and cling to the scriptures and they're able, okay? They're able to carry you. They're able to, to work. They're able to do this for you, Timothy. Turn your eyes more so, more wholeheartedly, more entirely to the scriptures, to Jesus who is the scriptures, who is the word of God. And this is Paul's exhortation to to Timothy to comfort him is the word of God is able. 
Now then, from these verses, I want to pull out three things from the text to just try to draw our minds, bend our hearts, incline our hearts to the Word of God. And, and the first is, the Word of God is able to save sinners. To reinforce your confidence in that. The Word of God is able to mature and equip the saint. And then I lastly want to conclude with just some, some thoughts and ideas on how these two relate to each other. The Word of God saving sinners and the Word of God sanctifying saints or maturing saints and how those two things relate to each other. But first here. So then, uh, and we see it here, the Word of God is able to save sinners. Verse 4.15 And you from a child have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Paul is, uh, you know when someone like understates something? The word able, it, it, the word is power. It means powerful or power. And, and, and we know salvation that for, for Paul to go, the Bible, the word of God is able to save sinners. We know that that means the word of God is able to make the simple wise, to humble the most arrogant pride, to melt and break the hardest heart, to cause the blind to see, to raise the dead to life, to bring the most hate-filled enemy of Christ, trembling, weeping to the feet of Jesus, of, of Jesus, to wash the vilest sinner clean, as clean as snow. So the Word of God is able to do these things. It's powerful to, to, to break the hardest heart. It's powerful to, to, to take the most hate-filled enemy of Jesus and bring them to a loving relationship. Paul was a testimony of that, right? So Paul knew that the Word of God was able and powerful. And he's reminding Timothy of the power of the Word of God in Timothy's life. Now, how does the Word of God save sinners? How does the Word of God, how is the Word of God powerful to save sinners? And we have two things here in verses 14 and 15. Verse 14, it says here, and I have it this way, the Word of God, in saving sinners, the Word of God teaches and makes wise. And we see this in verse 14. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, from whom you have learned it, and how from a child you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise unto salvation. So the word of God, the gospel, the first thing it does in its power in saving sinners is it makes them wise and it teaches them. It, it conveys knowledge. Salvation, or the idea uh, as we think of the gospel and salvation, the idea of a blind faith, just believe, um, or the idea of setting your brain aside and, and just, just believe on Jesus, just trust Jesus. Just cling to Jesus, set your brain aside, just cling to Jesus, and, and you'll be saved and everything will be wonderful and hunky-dory for you. That's not biblical faith. That's not gospel faith. That's not saving faith. First and foremost, the gospel, the word of God, is you need to know something. I put it here this way. The Bible and the gospel are first and foremost knowledge and truths that you must with your mind think on, wrestle with, and understand. 
the Bible, the gospel, it, it's truth primarily. It's, it's truth of a God. It's truth of an unseen world. And you, to some degree, you and I, to some degree, need to know and comprehend the truth of the word of God in order for us to be saved. Something of the gospel, something of the character and nature of God, something of the character and nature of man, of myself, something of, of Jesus Christ and him crucified and the salvation that that means. You need to know something. And, and Paul says to Timothy, you were taught this, you were taught this as a child, Timothy, growing up. If you, if you look back, and you don't have to turn, but I'll read it. In chapter 1, Paul says this to Timothy. I'm reminded, chapter 1, verse 5, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I'm sure dwells in you as well. That Timothy, as a child growing up, he had a believing grandmother and he had a believing mother that faithfully taught him the scriptures and taught him the word of God. And he knew something of the character and nature of God. And he knew something of sin and its offense against the holy God. And he knew something of a savior and of a substitute. He knew these things from a child coming up. He was taught these things faithfully. Years ago, I was in a jail ministry. Me and my dad were in a jail ministry. And we had all these inmates there uh, uh, in a Bible study and preaching, Bible study kind of thing. And the discussion came up of why there was so many jailhouse conversions. You, someone, someone's life falls apart, they go to jail, they start reading the Bible, they get saved. They get out of jail, their life falls apart again, they go back to jail, they read the Bible, they get saved. They, go, they get out of jail, their life falls apart, they go back to jail. They, anyways, this one guy in there, he said his brother... His life was a wreck, had gone to jail, read the Bible, got saved, got out. Everyone thought he was saved, thought he was a new man. They all trusted him. They all brought him back into their life, their parents, their siblings. And then his life was just a wreck, and he, he ruined everyone's lives and, and fell into sin and garbage. And he went back into jail, and, and he got saved again when he was in jail and reading the Bible, and he got saved again, and then he got out, and everyone trusted him. He's a Christian now. He's a new man. And then they all took him into his lives, and he just made a wreck of their lives. And he said that he did this four or five times. Like, and he's like, why didn't it work? Why didn't the gospel work? Why didn't it change him? Why, why are there these jailhouse conversions? And, and I was asked, I said, I said to him, in the gospel, in the gospel that they believed, you and I, we have an idea of who God. When, when I say God, you have an idea of who God is. You have an, an image of whoever the creator is, an idea of who God is. When I say you're a sinner, we all go, yes, we're all sinners. All, yeah, yeah, I'm a sinner. I have an idea of what I mean by I'm a sinner. We have an idea of salvation. When we say believe on Jesus and he'll save you, we have an idea of what that salvation means. Uh, a, a salvation that'll save us from something and to something else. We have an idea of what that is. And I said to them, if your idea of God and sin and salvation is this, and, and then I said, God in the Bible, he says who he is. God says he says who we are. He knows us with a perfect knowledge. He, he says, when God says, man, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, he means something by that. God means something by that, that, that we are sinners and fallen short of the glory of God. And, and then I said, the salvation, there's a meaning of the salvation. And I said, if you, if you understand and you believe a different salvation, a different God, you see yourself, your sin different than how God sees it, then you've believed a different gospel, a gospel that cannot save, a gospel that has no power to save you. 
And until you get the knowledge to go, here's what I think, but here's what God says to be true, and they're different, and I perceive this, but God says this is true, and I have, I have to wrestle with that difference. Either God is true and I'm a liar, and my thoughts need to be transformed according to what God says to be true, or God is a liar, and I'm going to cling to what I see to be true. And there's a struggle here. And so I, I remember with the guys there, I took them through Romans chapter 1, starting at 28, and I just said, when God says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, this is what he sees, this is what he means, and I went through. We, we, we were disobedient to parents, and or adulterers, and effeminate, and, and blasphemers, and liars, and covetous, and, and, and I went through the list. To believe, to not have a knowledge of the, of the gospel, a knowledge of the scripture, of the true gospel, and, and even the salvation. How many times have people gone, my life is a wreck, I'm going to try Jesus and maybe this will work out better. Jesus can save me from the mess I've made and, and I'll turn over a new leaf and, and, and the salvation to what I want is a good life, a better life, better than the mess that I've made and I'll try Jesus. I'll try Christianity. He'll save me from my bad decisions and the consequences of my bad decisions. He'll give me a, a new life or an, I'll, I'll do better next time, which is not the salvation of the gospel. It is not the salvation of the gospel. I remember I got converted when I was 16, and I, and I prayed a lot, and I, and I had thoughts about Jesus, but my salvation that I was praying for and hoping in was a get-out-of-hell-free card. I, I was scared. I loved me. I loved myself, and I didn't want me and myself to go to hell, and so I, I would pray and do whatever I could to not have to go to hell. Um, the idea of being saved to Jesus, to knowing and loving and adoring Jesus, the idea of being saved from my sin, not from the consequences of my sin, but from my sin itself, to knowing and loving and adoring and worshiping Jesus Christ, to see Jesus as a treasure hidden in the field for the joy of that, of that treasure. I'm gladly giving up everything to have Jesus. That wasn't the salvation I was praying for. That wasn't the salvation I was believing and hoping and trusting in. So you have to know, you have to have the the wisdom, the knowledge, and the Bible gives us the knowledge of the true God and and the true nature of our sin and and of the true gospel, the true good news. Not only that, with Timothy, and this is two different things happening in Timothy's life, and I think it's important. In verse 14, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing whom you have learned it. So Timothy learned, he was taught the gospel growing up, but he firmly believed the gospel. And this is two different things. Paul calls Timothy in chapter 1, verse 2, my child. So Timothy as a child was, was taught the gospel, but at some point in Timothy's life, he, he understood and he believed the gospel. At some point, he was born again and he was transformed and Paul calling him child, many theologians, and I tend to agree with them, say that on Paul's first missionary journey when he went through Timothy's town, he preached the gospel and Timothy believed the gospel and, and Timothy was Paul's spiritual child. He was born again under Paul's preaching and under Paul's teaching. So the word of God, the word of God is not only able to teach and give wisdom and understanding in the gospel, the word of God is able to persuade the heart, to persuade the affections. The word of God is capable of persuading the heart. It's capable of giving Timothy faith so that Timothy could firmly believe with the mouth we confess Jesus as Lord and with the heart we believe on, on God unto salvation. Timothy's heart was convinced and was persuaded in a moment in time he believed the message. 
So you can, and, and, and I put it this way, we can know intellectually the gospel with our mind and we can deny it with our heart. We can reject it with our heart. We can understand the truths of the gospel with our mind, but with our heart, we don't receive them. With our heart, we don't believe them. One can say, I understand that the Bible says that by nature I'm a liar. By nature, I am an enemy of God. I'm at my, my sin, I'm at war with God. And, and therefore, I'm an enemy of God or running from him. I, I understand that's what the Bible says, but I don't see myself that way. I'm not that bad. I've always had a good, admirable view of God. I've had a high view of God. I've praised God. I honor God. I would even dare say I've loved God my whole life. And God says, no, you love your sin and you've warred against that. And, and you understand what the gospel says, but with your heart, you don't receive it. You don't believe it. You push and you kick against it. You don't receive the gospel. Or one can say, I would never believe in a God that would send someone to hell. <laughs> I've heard that. The, the idea that judgment, the severity of the judgment of God against sin, that, that that severity, I don't believe, I could never believe in a God that would do that, that would send someone to hell. You understand the judgment of God, you don't receive it. <laughs> you harden your heart against it, you kick against it. My sister got converted a year ago, and she said, I understood that I was a sinner my whole life. And I understood that I deserve the wrath of God. I just could never understand and grasp and believe that God would love me the way I am. That God would, that Jesus would actually love me. Like, she was like, I always had to work and try to improve myself and make myself better and do the best I could to not be as sinful as I knew I was and to somehow get in a place where I could then, God would love me and save me. And she's like, I never could grasp the love of God. Um, I never could understand that he would love me even because of all my sin and my wretchedness. (laughs) Well, there's many that way, right? I know I'm a sinner. I know I deserve the wrath of God. I just can't emotionally, in my heart, understand and grasp the fact that God would love me, that Jesus died on the cross for me. I know he died for sinners. I know he died for the world, but but I'm so bad and I'm so vile. Maybe if I fixed my life and got myself into somewhat of a lovable condition, then God would love me and I could be saved and be born again, which is a false gospel, which is another gospel. Timothy believed with his heart the word of God and he was saved and he was born again. At a moment in time, God opened the eyes of his heart when Paul was there preaching and he understood and he believed the gospel and he was born again in a moment in time. The danger is not being, you can't be lulled into the gospel. You can't be taught into the gospel. You can't be massaged into the gospel truth. There is a moment in time when you have to understand and receive and believe the gospel. There's a confrontation. There's a humbling. There's a breaking. There's a time in which you're saved. Uh, and we pray even now, and even this morning, that some would hear and understand that they're a sinner and a wretch and need a Savior, and that Jesus loves them, and he died for them, and he saved their soul. But, but you have to receive the gospel. Individuals, children, adults, you have to come face-to-face with the gospel and receive it. You can't get into heaven by associating with believers. It's a personal gospel. Timothy believed the gospel. Second, The Word of God is able to mature and equip the saint. And and this flows from the gospel. We see it in verse 16 here. All scripture is breathed out by God and 
profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This is here, all scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, every verse, every line, every word, all scripture is breathed out by God, it's spoken, it's authenticated by God, and therefore it's profitable. Therefore it's able to, to sanctify and equip and mature the Christian. All scripture is breathed out by God. So then we hear what we have here, and I'll, and I'll go through this with us just briefly to try to draw our minds to think and meditate on these things. But all scripture is profitable for teaching. Once someone has, by faith, received the gospel, the free gift of God, trusting in Jesus Christ alone, apart from righteousness, apart from their works righteousness, uh, trusting in Jesus Christ alone, they have freely been given, they are born again, they have a new identity in Christ, they have a new nature, they have a new master, Jesus, they have the Spirit of God living in them, yet now they need to be taught. We once, prior to salvation, we once lived according to the course of this world. We loved and worshipped ourselves. Satan was our spiritual father. All of our thoughts, words, and actions were governed by the lust of our eyes, the lust of our flesh, and our boastful pride. We now need to be taught to think, feel, talk, act according to our new nature and our new father. The transformation of what happened, I was an enemy running from God and now I'm a lover of Jesus Christ, is so radically different that the way we think, the way we feel, the way we act, our emotions, our affections, everything has changed. We are born again and now we need to be taught how do we talk? Like, how do I think as a believer? How should I think as a believer? And, and, or how should I not think? Is my thinking based on my old man, based on my, my, my whole life up until this point, how should I feel as a believer? How should I feel towards the brethren? How should I feel towards others? What should I, how should, my words, how should I speak? All of this we need to be taught. We're saved in a moment. And then the scripture is able to take the word of God and begin to train us. Here's who Jesus is. Here's what the word of God says. Here's what your new creation is. Here's what your new nature is. You have been born again. You're redeemed. You're a new person, right? Now I'm going to teach you how to live and talk and act like who you are as a Christian. You are a sanctified, glorified Christian. And now the word of God will teach us and train us how to live out who we are. I think of it this way. We often think of teaching as a professor with a textbook in front of a classroom. The God teaching us, the Spirit of God teaching us, think of it more as a father teaching his child how to ride a bike. The father puts his son on the bike, he, he gets the bike going, and he shoves the bike, and he yells at his son, pedal, and the child goes 20 feet, and he falls over and skins his knee, and then the father comes and picks him up and brushes his knee off, sticks him back on the bike, pushes him, we think of the Bible as this is a list of rules and, and, and a textbook God is throwing at us, and we have to learn it and figure it out and go do it. And I'm saying, no, the Spirit of God takes the Word of God, and he writes it on our hearts and on our minds as we, as we read the Word of God and as we hear the preaching of the Word of God. The Spirit of God takes it, and he writes the Word of God on our hearts and on our minds. And as we're walking about our life, he brings the Word of God to our mind, and he teaches us, and he trains us. Don't think that way about your wife, right? That's not good. 
don't talk that way to your children. That's, that's going to be destructive. And then the Spirit of God, like a father, comes alongside us and he teaches us and he leads us and he guides us, the Word of God, into our hearts and into our life. It's not a textbook that we, <laughs> that we have to just figure it out and make sure we do it. He writes it on our hearts. And then it says here, the Word of God is profitable for teaching, for reproof and correction. And I put those two together and the Word of God is profitable for reproof and correction. The idea of reproof is, is that by which a thing is proved or tested. So the Word of God is that thing by which we are proved or tested by the Word of God. Or I can put it this way, uh, John 1, 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. Jesus Christ is the Word of God, and Jesus Christ is the one who were constantly compared and were tested to Jesus. The idea of reproof here is the word. That by which a thing is proved or tested, we're constantly compared to as we know Jesus, as we love him and as we adore him, as we see him in the scripture, we constantly see ourselves compared to Jesus. And we fall short, <laughs> and we fail, and we miss the mark, and, and we feel like, Oh, how Jesus loved people, and I, and I don't, right? Or when, when I don't, I don't, I see it, and I feel it. I feel this reproof. I feel this correction as we're compared to Jesus, as we're compared to the Word of God. It is the standard. But then the word correction is a restoration unto uprightness or a right state. So the Word of God, we feel the reproof, and then the Word of God corrects us, and it restores us to a right state, a right way of thinking, a right way of acting. It corrects us, it reproves us, and it corrects us. It brings us around. And I have to say this to try to see the gospel. When we hear the word reproof or rebuke, we can often think of an angry dad or an angry mom or, or a strict boss that's harping on us and that we can never please, that we don't know if they love us, and, and we kick against that idea of correction or that idea of reproof. And I want us to think about this. Who, when we read the Bible, in verse 16, the Word of God is able to, is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction. I want us to think of who is the one reproving or who is the one correcting us. And I put it this way. This is the one, Jesus, he's the one who cried, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing when he was on the cross. This is the same one who cried, it is done, it is finished. So, there's no greater love than a man lay down his life for his friend, right? So if you can hear the reproof that comes when you read the scriptures or when you hear the scriptures, when you, when you hear and you feel the reproof, if you could just see Jesus, the one who's reproving you, if you could see through the scriptures to the, to the man, the God-man, Jesus Christ, who's reproving you, you would see that he's the one that loves you with his whole being. He laid down his life for you. He's already paid. It's finished. He's paid the penalty for your sin. The wrath of God is gone. The penalty of sin is gone. And, and, and now he's correcting you and he, and, he, and he reproves you and he corrects you because he loves you and he's training you and he's molding you into his image, right? He's, he's not angry. He's, he's, he's not mad at you. It's finished. The price has been paid. He loves you with his whole heart. It's way easier to receive reproof from someone you know they love you. You know they would die for you. You know they, 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 their heart, their whole being is for you and toward you, and they want your greatest good. And it's like, okay, fine, reprove me, great. <laughs> I love it when you reprove me. 
And when we hear the Word of God and, and we feel the reproof of the Word of God and we feel as we compare ourselves to Christ, this is the same one who said back in Genesis, let there be light, and there was light. He spoke words, and he said there was no light, absolute darkness. He spoke words, and there was light. He said, let the waters bring forth abundantly fish and mammals after their kind. This is the same one, and I think it's the connection here. He formed Adam out of the dust of the earth, remember? And, and he made him a man, and he breathed into Adam, Adam's nostrils the breath of life, and Adam, man, became a living soul. It says in verse 16, All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable. God speaks, and he breathes, and life happens. This is not just a textbook that we have to follow when we hear the word of God, when we hear it as it is indeed the word of God. His word gives life. His word breathes life into our soul, right? If we were to remove Jesus from the word of God and and are approaching into it, it's nothing but condemnation. But in and through Christ, we are reconciled with the Father, and now his words breathe life. His words give life. Profitable for correction, for reproof, and and for training in righteousness, which I'll, I'll move on from that. But, and then just two thoughts on the comparison between the Bible unto salvation and the Bible unto sanctification, I have two thoughts on that. And the one is by order. We see it here that Timothy, verse 15, which was able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Timothy was first saved. He first believed the scriptures unto salvation. And then in verse 16, after salvation, he he believed the scriptures unto growth and maturity and equipping, right? So in the order is extraordinarily important. First, we believe the gospel and enjoy all of the benefits of being in Christ. And after and in that being in Christ, does God use his word to mature us? So we enjoy the free blessings of the gospel by faith alone, by Christ alone. We love Jesus. He saved us. We're sinners. It's all good. We're reconciled to God. And, and, we, and we have to live and enjoy that reconciliation with God. And then when God begins to correct or reprove us, it doesn't threaten our vertical relationship with the Father. He loves us and grace flows freely into our hearts by faith alone, by Christ alone. And the sanctification of verse 16, the spiritual growth in verse, does not threaten the gospel, right? All of our joy and our power and our ability to, to hear the word of God and to love it and to walk in it and to obey it, that all flows from the love of God that he pours into our heart by the gospel alone. We don't earn that love of God by obedience. We get it by faith alone in Christ alone, right? The love of God. And the love of God is the fuel, the grace that causes us to hear and walk in the word of God. And then this one the vertical relationship, the gospel is the atmosphere in which all spiritual growth and sanctification must happen, must, must come about. And we see that in chapter 4, verse 2. Just look at this. Paul's exhortation to Timothy as an elder, as a pastor, but to elders in a church even here, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort elders, you do this, you, you apply the word of God, you bring the word of God to bear in people's lives, reprove, rebuke, exhort, and then he goes with complete patience in teaching. 
That's their heart attitude in which they are to, to reprove, rebuke, and exhort. That's gospel there. Be free grace, unearned grace towards the congregation as you're reproving, correcting, rebuking, right? They sin, we all sin, right? Therefore, have complete patience and teach them patiently as a child. Bear with them. Or we, the, the same atmosphere is in chapter 2, verse 24. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind in, to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponent with gentleness. That's gospel atmosphere. That's gospel heart attitude. This is how you minister the word of God to each other. This is elders. This is how you minister the word of God to people is you got to be gentle with them. You have to be careful. You have to be kind and patient and long-suffering with them. Let me close with this. Remember with Jesus and his 12 disciples when they left the upper room and they were going to the Garden of Gethsemane and there's the 11 disciples and Jesus turns to his 11 disciples and he said, you all are going to forsake me tonight. You're all going to fall away tonight. And he says, for it's written that I'm going to smite the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. Therefore, all of you disciples, you're going to abandon me tonight. And remember what Peter said? No, no, far be it, Jesus. I would never forsake you. Though the the other disciples forsake you, I would never forsake you, Jesus. I wouldn't do that. You're wrong. I don't receive what you say to me, Jesus. And then Jesus says to Peter directly, No, Peter, you, you're going to deny me three times tonight before the cock crows. You specifically are going to reject me with an oath three times before, before the rooster crows tonight. And Peter goes, oh, I would never deny you. Though I died with you, though I, though I was carried away with you, I would never deny you. I would never reject you. Not too long later, Peter, in all of his arrogance, there was pride, right? When you tell the word of God, no, I don't believe you. When you tell Jesus, no, you're wrong. When, when you have this, this boastful, like, we're proud, like that, I can resonate with Peter. I can do this. You, you think too lowly of me, Jesus. I'm amazing. And not too long later, he pulls out his sword and he charges into a group of 600 men, whacks a guy's ear off. He was going to defend Jesus in the power of the flesh. He was going to promote the kingdom in the power of the sword. He was incredible. He was amazing. It was all fleshly. It was all Peter. It was all to the glory of Peter. And then Peter goes on, they arrest Jesus, and Peter denies Jesus with an oath three times. And then remember, after he denied him the third time, and he heard the, cup, the rooster crow twice, Peter looked, and they were taking Jesus from one house to the next, and Jesus looked at Peter. And in that moment, Peter saw his sin. In that moment, Peter remembered the words that Jesus had said earlier that night, and it says, Peter went out and wept bitterly. Peter saw the look of Jesus as a rebuke. (laughs) The Spirit of God reminded him of the word that he had said to him earlier that night, and it was a rebuke to his soul. And Peter went and wept bitterly. My point in saying that is, all of those tears flowing out of Peter, there was a lot of pride flowing out of him. There was a lot of self-confidence flowing out of him. There was a lot of independence from Jesus flowing out of him. There was a lot of Peter dying in him that night. And he was in no condition to pastor or to feed the lambs of God in that condition. He had to be humbled. He had to be broken. He had to be made tender and lowly that night. He needed that. That was a good thing for him. 
when we hear the rebuke of the Word of God, when we hear it from God, when we, hear, when we finally hear what the Word of God says, so much sin dies. It's incredible. And, and when we hear God forming righteousness in us, we become righteous. It produces righteousness in us. His Word does that. Let's close in prayer. Father, I thank you for the Word of God. Lord, I love the Word of God. I pray, Father, that you would give me and give us grace of faith, a confidence that the Word of God is able and that we would, we would cling to the Scriptures, we would read them, we would search the Scriptures, Lord, so that we might know you and the power of your resurrection that's in and through the Scriptures. I ask this in Christ's name, amen.